Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Kyle Rasur, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, Compliance Week Editor-in-Chief Kyle Brasur and I talk about some of the articles that appeared in Compliance Week in May, talk about some of the articles that will appear in Compliance Week in June, take a deep dive into the recently completed Compliance Week 2022 annual conference, and conclude by talking some sports. Of course, we talk about the Celtics in the NBA Finals. We look at Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban's bat, as well as some other key topics. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which have and will appear in Compliance Week. Look at um, events, talk some sorts, and generally try to save the world's problems. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. And I'm Kyle Brasser, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, and I'm thrilled to join Tom to take a look back at some of the top stories we published in May, review some of Compliance Week's 2022 National Conference, preview CW stories for June, and talk some sports. So, Kyle, um, there were some uh, great stories in Compliance Week in May. What were two or three that really stood out for you or your team? Yeah, Tom, you know, it, it's uh, I'm, I'm happy to say we actually enjoyed a record month in May in terms of uh, site visitors and traffic. So um, really great to sort of have that to, to be able to speak to. Um, two of the main drivers behind that were, and I, I discussed this when we were last together, um, we had two large um, special report packages um, that came together and were published during the month of May. Uh, the first being a whistleblower report at USAA that um, raised some allegations of some violations of law and uh, some poor compliance culture. And then we also had a special report taking a deep dive into um, ESG at FedEx. Um, you know, FedEx is a company that's been disclosing its ESG metrics since 2008. So uh, we took a look at what those disclosures have looked like and how they've evolved over the years um, and was they were able to speak with uh, some of the compliance folks at FedEx to be able to provide some context to those numbers. So, uh, again, a really strong month of May for us uh, and, and excited to uh, be able to share that, uh, you know, it was it was a record month for us. So I was able actually to interview Aaron Nicodemus on the FedEx trilogy he put together, a series of stories. And uh, that's going to go up next Monday on the FCPA Compliance Report. So I hope our listeners will listen to that podcast where Aaron really talks us through uh, the investigative uh, reporting process, what he was able to, to uh, put together, and then uh, his, um, his three articles. Uh, and we recorded that at Compliance Week 2022, which leads me into a topic that we both greatly enjoy. We greatly enjoy talking about it beforehand, and I think we're going to enjoy talking about it afterwards just as much. So we just completed... Compliance Week 2022, uh, I have to say from everyone I talked to's perspective, it was a, a rousing success. But I wanted to maybe start with asking, what were some of the highlights for you or your team at Compliance Week? Yeah, I mean, for starters, one of the main highlights is hearing feedback like that, Tom. You know, we, we've, we've really appreciated hearing from the community their thoughts and, and, and happy to say it's been 
mostly positive. Um, you know, for myself, it was really exciting to get back to, to attending a conference in person. Um, so this was my first in-person conference since Compliance Week 2019. And it was our first as a company in-person conference at the same time. So um, it was really uh, just exciting to be back. Actually, I'll, I'll correct myself. We were in Europe in 2019. But um, it was just good to, to, to be back and see everybody again. You know, um, a lot of familiar faces that we have that attend our conferences each year. Um, but also some fresh faces there as well. Uh, for me, you know, I think a lot of the standouts were uh, as much as I enjoyed the, the keynote sessions. And I think the, the one that many people are talking about is, is Kenneth Polite, uh, the, the head of the criminal division at the DOJ. His keynote address was really an inspiring message to compliance officers. Uh, as much as I enjoyed those keynote sessions, and I think we had a really strong slate of those this year. Uh, it was just great to be back in the room during some of the breakout sessions. Uh, you know, the way these panels are constructed, they always do such a good job of interacting with the audience, getting, you know, answering questions from practitioners. Uh, and for me, that's the real treat, because I think that that's what we sort of lost during the, the virtual conference era. Uh, it wasn't as easy to have those networking or those those feedback opportunities. And, you know, I mentioned this in the editorial panel that we had to close out the conference. You know, my favorite words to hear at a compliance event is something along the lines of, I never thought of it that way. You know, it's, it's a simple gesture, but I think that that's the goal that we are striving for in putting on a compliance conference is to just get people to take um, new approaches to, to how they do their job. You know, again, we're not reinventing the wheel with any of this. We're not telling somebody for the first time, this is what third party risk management is. We're, we're just trying to give people some different perspectives and, and maybe provide them uh, something that they can bring back to their own program. So just such a joy to be able to see that again, be in the room for those sort of discussions uh, and really looking forward to using the momentum to uh, carry right into our third party risk management conference in June. So the Kenneth Polite speech or Polite speech, I should say, it was interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first one was he uh, quite vehemently announced Department of Justice will not tell you uh, how you should have constructed compliance program and then proceeded to tell us exactly how to do it. And uh, and it was very useful information. Uh, so that was that was great. And also, shout out to Compliance Week for transcribing and sending that to us. But the other part was, and, and I, I think both Compliance Week Calver Sur and Tom Fox are going to have to explore this next topic at a little more depth, and that's the CCO certification. And certainly he justified that from the um, DOJ perspective. Um, I'm not sure he's correct, but uh, I think it's something we're both going to have to, to watch and write about. But I were three other things I wanted to pitch to you, a little bit off perhaps uh, the beaten track uh, path, of why I thought this was uh, such a successful conference. Um, the first one was, or is, there was uh, multiple companies from the group that owns Compliance Week, your suite of family of companies there. Yeah. Uh, you had FRA, who was hugely involved in the um, putting the conference together and running it. And I don't think a lot of uh, readers or perhaps even listeners might be uh, as aware of FRA as certainly you and I are, but they provided really the backbone. Uh, uh, that also included, uh, you had representatives there from ICA, 
and they have been at prior Compliance Week events, but uh, the, I found them much more prominent and much more engaged this year. So it was great to hear about what your colleagues in, in the United Kingdom are doing. So that was kind of uh, point one. Uh, point two was in the vendor room. There were a number of vendors who, frankly, I had not heard of before. And uh, most of the vendors in the compliance community are well-known. They are very supportive. They are at numerous events, and they put on lots of uh, great content and resources for us in the compliance community. But there were some people who, like I said, I'd never heard of, and I thought I heard of everybody. Uh, So what that really got me thinking about was something that you just ended with. Well, I really hadn't thought of it that way. And I've always found we've got a lot of innovation in the compliance community. When non-traditional compliance vendors and suppliers come into our space, they look at what you and I have been looking at for many years and say, oh, let's try it a different way, or let me show you another way. And we've really gotten some innovation in that. So I really enjoyed the fact that there were I don't know if you would call them non-compliance vendors or non-traditional vendors or just newer, different vendors. Um, so that was, uh, for me, very, very interesting. And the third was uh, perhaps a little more traditional was John Kerry Rue. Uh, one of my heroes for the book he wrote and his investigative reporting leading to the book, Bad Blood, he broke the Theranos story. Uh, a very professional journalist, uh, he talked about his journalistic process and that of he's left the uh, the journal, but it was then his employer was the Wall Street Journal. And he talked about, yes, these allegations were brought forward, uh, but the research he did, the investigation he did, the confirmation he did, uh, the multiple sources he was able to put together before it even went to print. And it really, to me, spoke to the professionalism of the the journalists involved in that case, and certainly his. And I got to ask him a question about, uh, I thought it was going to be about journalists and investigations of businesses, but he made it much broader, uh, going back to Watergate, literally, um, about the, the history and the tradition of investigative journalism and how he believes that's such an important part of everyone's job in uh, compliance, whether it was Mary Inman, who was on the stage with him, uh, moderating uh, the session, her role as a whistleblower attorney, uh, perhaps you're in my roles as commentators mm-hmm. to people. Uh, well, certainly Compliance Week's role with your uh, whistleblower series. Um, you know, my role as a commentator, numerous compliance officers who were in the room. And uh, so I was I was very moved by that. Uh, he's obviously one of my journalistic heroes because of the work he uh, did for Bad Blood and can't wait to see what he comes up with next. So those were kind of three, perhaps the, the last one is a little more traditional, but he was able to take what I thought was kind of a narrow question and really reframe it to talk about uh, the the history and tradition of investigative journalism, but in his mind, why it's, it's so important that a compliance week would have a, a series on whistleblowers and to bring these stories to light. Yeah. And, you know, from uh, the media perspective as well, you know, we're, we're speaking from the same angle here a little bit. It's uh, it's just always in, in, enlightening to hear from someone else who's, who's doing the job and, and to hear those sort of things, you know, it's, it's, 
uh, I think it, it was important too that he mentioned numerous times that you know these stories are not possible without the whistleblowers and what they what they put themselves through and, and what they put on the line. So, you know, it, it's always reaffirming for our our wider audience and for us that you know you have to put a lot of faith in your sources because their sources are putting a lot of faith in you. Um, so, you know, really great to hear from John. Uh, really great to get the. Uh, some of those different vendors in there, like you said, um, you know, I think it's it's a reflection of where this industry is, is heading and, and sort of the fact that compliance is taking on so much more at organizations is leading to a lot of these vendors popping up in these what used to be niche areas that are now sort of becoming cottage industries on their own. You know, your ESG, your data privacy, um, it's, it's just a sign of the times. So... Um... The uh, let me pick up on the investigative piece that you guys did on whistleblowers, and I guess the thing obviously you told their story in terms of the facts and uh, the results at their companies. But what intrigued me more, uh, Kyle, was really their personal stories about what they went through, and I think bringing that out really helps people who might think they're alone. Uh, and no one cares or no one will help them. Did, did you get any feedback for really the, that part or that personal nature of the story as opposed to the story in the context of the company or what violations uh, may or may not have been uncovered? Yeah, when we ran the Whistleblower series last year, the, the top performing piece of the series was one titled, you know, here's what compliance officers, here's what whistleblowers want you to know. So that was the really the, the piece that resonated the most with our audience was was the one that spoke to the hey this is this is when we're doing this this is what we're putting on the line and it's not so much about the violations here but more of the what we go through um, it, that's a really important part of the story to give attention is is what these people go through uh, when we had the series and we were very fortunate that each of the whistleblowers we spoke with were willing to speak on video and speak up to their experiences on the record. Uh, but many of them, almost all of them lost their jobs. You know, some of them really had to cut by there on, by the skin of their teeth for a while. Um, you know, many of them aren't getting rewarded until 15 years plus. Uh, it's a tremendous amount of, of personal harm that comes to these individuals. who are just trying to do the right thing. You know, each one of these people found fraudulent activity and, and just did what they thought they should do. Um, and it, it, it always is a tremendous burden. So, you know, to see that sort of reception to the series uh, was really reaffirming to us because when we were in the process of drafting the series and the approach we wanted to take, that was key to us, was getting to the element of retaliation and what it looks like and having these individuals speak about what they went through. Because uh, that's, that's a really a part that doesn't get enough attention. You know, we see the large fine against the organization. And every now and then we, we get an understanding of the, the bounty that a whistleblower receives, but we don't see what happens in between that. And there is a lot that happens in between that, especially when some of these awards don't go out 10, 15 years later. So maybe put ask you to put your uh, down the road hat on and maybe give us a hint or two about some of the stories that uh, you know are coming out in June. Uh, although, uh, uh, as we found out last week with Glencore, where it can always be surprised. Yes. Uh, the, uh, yeah, that was one that uh, caught us a little off guard too, but you know, just another case of a, a, a story where, again, speaking a lot to what Kenneth Plee had said in his speech, 
Um, the compliance enhancements weren't there when the the problems took place, but they're getting there now, and, and it's reflected in the way the DOJ interprets the case, uh, because I do believe that the fine could have been much stiffer in that Glencore case, and I mean, they agreed to pay over more, more than $1 billion, but uh, could have been much stiffer if they hadn't made the enhancements that they've made in the years since. Um, looking ahead to June, you know, we're still coming off the, the, the high of the conference a little bit. We've been spreading out the coverage from the event, um, really just uh, so much that we were able to glean from it just by being flies on the wall. So uh, a lot of what we have planned is is not only coverage from the event, but story ideas that were generated from the event. And, you know, for us as writers at the at the conference, uh, that's the real main uh, bonus is, is being able to go there and help inform our coverage. You know, whether it's just a, a passing comment made during a session or feedback we receive from uh, a member or just an attendee that says, oh, you should explore this. Uh, we take all of that to heart. And I mean, we actually have, I'd say about five or six stories in the works um, that are just based off things we heard in rooms and, and, and things that people came up to us and said, I'd, I'd love to, to read more about this. Um, and we're really excited about some of the content we have coming. Uh, you know, it's, it's still taking form. I know some of the stuff we want to tackle. We talked about during our editorial panel, uh, you know, this, this new work landscape uh, that compliance officers and businesses will have to navigate where half the employees are in the office and half the employees are working from home and avoiding that, you know, discrimination of one or the other. Um, that's a story topic we'll be exploring. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to be doing a lot more regarding uh, the, the situation in Ukraine and Russian sanctions now that we had uh, the chance to hear out some of these practitioners and what they're dealing with. Um, and then also we had uh, early in the conference a, a um, compliance officer think tank uh, that was very informative, just good, you know, good to hear from a lot of these uh, leading names in the industry uh, regarding some of the, the issues their programs face. So, you know, we plan to continue our coverage of that think tank, but also use it to lift off into some deeper dives into some of the stuff of what they discussed. So um, I have to say, I also enjoyed the the final panel you were on at the end. Uh, when you wrapped up, not only uh, not only wrapped up the conference, but I was also intrigued by the things that had obviously struck you and your co-panelists as either important topics to follow up on or new ideas or just things that uh, you guys found interesting. So I look forward to seeing um, what you guys come up with in June. So we are now to the reason we started this podcast, which is, of course, so we can save the world by talking about sports. And uh I would say uh, we've had some pretty big news come out of Boston this week, and that is the Boston Celtics, who I think in February were 25 and 25, are now going to the NBA Finals. And uh, it was a bumpy road, uh, game six, game seven almost was bumpy. But uh, at the end, the, the Celtics prevailed. I think they probably were the better team in this series. And uh, maybe what your thoughts are on this Celtic team how far they've come, and uh, is this a team that is at least positioned for a run uh, of this level for two, three, maybe four years down the road? You know, I think it was after, I want to say it was after game six where um, Derek White on the Celtics had made a comment of saying, you know, it wouldn't be us if we weren't facing this type of adversity. Uh, And that was really what the team went through this year. Like you mentioned, they were really 
down in the dumps there for a while and, and really uh, caught their stride late in the season. And so it, it's not too surprising to see that they haven't had the cleanest road uh, through the playoffs. But I think that that's, they proved that that's the type of team there are is, the, is one that's positioned to overcome adversity. Um, so, you know, as a, as a Boston sports fan, it's, it's been a joy to watch. Um, you know, it's been uh, nerve wracking to watch certainly a lot of cardiac moments, but um, just great to see them back in the finals. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's still hard to believe it because these guys have been in the league for a couple of years, but it's still a relatively young team. You know, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, the two leaders of the team are still in their young twenties and they're still finding their footing in the league. So, I have to imagine, uh, you know, if they keep that core intact and continue to build the pieces around them, that they are a threat for a few years to come. But, um, you know, the, the the league has a way of surprising you every now and then, just the same way the Celtics surprised everyone this year. Um, so, you know, going into the NBA Finals against the Golden State Warriors, obviously a team that is no stranger to the NBA Finals. Uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting matchup. Uh, I think... The fact that the Celtics have had to play two seven-game series is probably going to work against them. That's a lot of extra mileage on those legs, uh, whereas the Warriors are coming in a little bit cleaner. But uh, I'm sure it's going to be a dogfight. I don't I, I don't see many uh, predictors expecting a clean sweep on either end. So uh, looking forward to watching it, looking forward to, to seeing what the, the both teams are capable of doing. And like you said, down the road, uh, you have to imagine that this, with, if the core is kept intact, uh, I think these, these Celtics will be sticking around for a bit. That said, the East is tough. And as long as Giannis is in the East, uh, that's that's a big hurdle to clear every year. Well, let me go in a little bit different direction on uh, the Celtics. And it's the following. Well, first of all, I have to say I'm a huge Marcus Smart fan. Uh, I'm a big defense guy. But I fell in love with Marcus Smart when he was in college. So to add smart to Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, um, that's uh, something that intrigues me. But there's another angle I'd like to, to maybe explore with you, and that's um, Celtic pride is well-known. Uh, the fan base is well-known. Uh, I'm not quite sure TD Garden is what I remember the old garden being, but it's still a fabulous place to play basketball and a fabulous place to see basketball. But this team was not constructed by this general manager or this coach. Uh, Danny Ainge was the general manager when those guys were drafted. And the current GM, Brad Stevens, was the coach. And when Stevens uh, stepped down, I think he stepped down first, <clears throat> and then uh, Ainge resigned as GM and a new coach came in, and that coach's name is, I just pulled it up, Aimee Yudoka. Is that right? Yudoka. Um, but this team was year, literally years in the making, and you spoke about their age, but uh, Tatum and Brown, I think, are three, maybe four-year vets. Yeah. Uh, Smart is at least four, maybe a five-year vet. But – I think uh, Stevens seemed to recognize he brought great energy and great strategy, but it seemed to me he either burned out or recognized he had taken it as far as he could, and he stepped aside. And then he moved to a job he had never done, which was a GM, although perhaps as a college coach you're essentially a GM. 
But he took that role in the pro, pro ranks uh, from a team that Danny Ainge had largely put together. So I was wondering if you had any real thoughts on, on that sort of culture, that continuity, how uh, Stevens stepping down or stepping aside, however you might choose to, uh, to characterize it, and a new coach coming in, the team buying into that coach's system, uh, literally to taking the Celtics where they are today. Yeah, you know, I think it, it speaks a lot to a lot of those individuals, not only, you know, what they're willing to do and, and, and maybe um, the choices they made, but also to the team to have faith in what Danny Ainge built. You know, it wasn't a matter of, all right, Danny Ainge is gone. We have to, to blow it up and start over again. Um, they really stuck to it and they, they kept that continuity in place by moving Brad Stevens up and having Stevens hire a new coach that, he could work with. And, and again, they, they, they had a lot of trust in the system that they had built and they knew what they were capable of. And that I think is, is often something you need to do with young players. You know, you can't expect them to come into the league and have it all put together in their first year or their second year. Uh, and I mean, Tatum and Brown really put it together quick, but we see with Marcus Smart, he's been around for quite a long time. He's the longest tenured Celtic. And, you know, it really came together for him in the past couple of years, but really this year was where all of it came together. That that strong defense that's been a, a trait of his since he came out of college really hit the next level this year. Um, so I think that that really speaks to um, just the, the the organization's trust that they had in in, in Danny and in and the system itself. You know, it wasn't a matter of all right, everyone here is new and in new positions. We need to shake things up. It's more we know what we have here. What can we do around this team to get them to where we think they're capable of going? And I think that that's the approach they took at the trade deadline when they were a bit of a 500 team and, and struggling was to change up the pieces around that core, not remove the core itself, change the pieces around it and figure out what we need to get them to play at the level they're capable of, which is, you know, a finals contender. The Celtics have sniffed on the door of the finals you know, a, a few of the last several years. So, you know, it, it's, they knew what they had. They knew what they were capable of. It was just a matter of putting the pieces together to get them there. And it worked out. I mean, they're, they're in the finals and we'll see how far they go from here. But uh, a lot of it is going to be the, the trust, trust in the system and, and uh, making sure that you don't uh, hit the eject button too soon. Now I want to turn to something that uh, is a little closer to my world, which was or is this huge row now between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher. And it started with Nick Saban all but calling out by name Jimbo Fisher for having the number one recruiting class in America and claiming they were bought and sold or bought by Texas A&M and they sold them by NILs. Uh, name image, image likeness deals for each of the players. Um, it was so dramatic that the next day Fisher called a press conference uh, to specifically refute the allegations and say, uh, you know, you want to look at God, don't look too close because it's going to get kind of ugly. So that was the setting. A uh, couple of more interesting factors to me were, um, I'm of the opinion Saban does nothing uh, that's not calculated. And I say that because the place he made the remarks was to a group of Alabama boosters in the context of Alabama women's sports. 
And he went completely off topic to talk about this. So uh, Jimbo Fisher coaches at Texas A&M, who beat Alabama last year. And so the questions I had were a couple. Number one is Saban just pissed off that he lost a game. And we know the answer to that's yes. He's always pissed off. Two, was he telling the Alabama boosters, hey, guys, UT, my alma mater, and Texas A&M are out there using NILs to recruit. And, oh, by the way, so is Jackson State with our friend Primetime. Um, We better get with the program. Uh, This is all in the context of the literally wild west of college recruiting now with transfer portals, these NIL NIL deals that are literally worth millions of dollars. The coach's response to this, it was like the epic battle of Zeus and his eldest born son throwing lightning bolts at each other. I've been around college football a long time. And, you know, I can remember when they asked him, you got the death penalty. I can remember when other universities were accused of buying or selling players. When I was in high school, uh, Texas A&M was caught buying a refrigerator for somebody's mother and that got a player expelled. We've come a long way from that, but uh, you know, this has gone on above the table and below the table for a long time. Um, you're sitting up there in new England. Yeah. You've certainly covered college sports, uh, college football, but it's not a lifeblooded death sports no. that it is down here. Is this anything new or different than you've heard? Or is this something else? I mean, you're right. We, I don't, uh, we in New England don't pay as much attention to college sports as they do down south. You know, especially I mean, my alma mater does not even have a football team, so it was hard for me to always identify with it a little bit. But I do agree with you saying that you know this is not uh, a slip of the tongue or anything like that. These words are always calculated, and I think that extends to to all of these sports. You know, coaches, players, they know how something can come out of you know what you say and, and how these stories can take on a life of their own. And so it's not, it's a little surprising sometimes when it's, it's that straightforward, you know, there was no, I don't think it was, it was, there was no veiled intentions here. There was no sort of suggestion. It was a straight up call out. And, you know, I think that that's the why uh, Jimbo Fisher reacted the way he did. I certainly don't blame him at that point. He had to, but um it's not. I think that's the, the, the surprising part to me. It's it's, it's not too. Uh, it's not the first time we've seen something like this, but it's really just uh, surprising how blunt it's been and how in your face it's been. Uh, because I think once that first uh, arrow is fired, then it's sort of like all all bets are off, and now it's a it's a, a public feud. Uh, so you know, as as a well outside observer, uh, I know that's what sort of pricked my ears was wow okay these guys aren't aren't holding back and they're not these shots are not um veiled at all they're they're really transparent so the other interesting thing to me is these allegations were made against texas a&m uh after the national signing date and the response from my alma mater the university of texas was well we just got to do better they did that we'll do this we're ut no big deal Nobody called out Jimbo Fisher. They said, Sep, he got us this time. You know, we're going to get organized now. Uh, That's the way to do it. Just stay out of it. (laughs) 
So uh, anyway, that's going to be a lot of fun for us to watch down here. And of course, A&M plays Alabama this year. So we're going to get to be treated to something. Oh, yeah. Kyle, um, as always, it's uh, been great. I am Tom Fox, your co-host of From the Editor's Desk. And I'm Kyle Brasser. Thank you again for joining us and join us next time. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to From the Editor's Desk. I'm excited to announce a new podcast series for the summer of 2022. I've revamped Trekking Through Compliance for New Compliance and Leadership's Lessons Learned. It premieres on June 1 and runs for 80 consecutive days. So if you're interested in the intersection of Star Trek and Compliance, this is the podcast for you, Trekking Through Compliance from the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join Kyle and I again next month where we take a look at some of the stories that appeared in Compliance Week and will appear in the following month.